Amen. Friends, would you join me one more time in asking the Lord to bless us as we go to his word. Father God, as we come to your word, as we come hungry, would you fill us? As we come needy, would you meet our needs with your precious grace in Christ Jesus? As we come to this text, convinced that maybe somewhere in this world is the gain we're looking for, would you break us of all those illusions and would you help us see where true gain can be found? Would you help us by your spirit behold in this ancient wisdom the pointers to Christ? Would you help us by these ancient texts goad us towards the true gain to be had in Christ Jesus? Would you help us now as we study this text in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen, friends. I don't know about you, but I get lost in the grocery store all the time. I'm not that familiar because most of the time my lovely wife does the grocery shopping. But when I have to go and pick things up, it seems mystifying to me where things can be found. I wander around and look for what's on my list. And I definitely do not like asking the employees for help. So I would rather wander up and down the aisles back and forth and crisscross and eventually find most of what I need than ask anyone, where can this be found? But imagine I went into the grocery store and I was wandering around and could not find the items on my list. And then I went over to the manager at the customer service counter and asked him, where on earth in this store are your brake pads? I'm doing a job replacing the brakes on my van and I cannot find for the life of me these brake pads. Why don't you have them? What would be wrong with that picture? I obviously don't know that brake pads can't be found at grocery stores. It's absurd to be looking in the wrong place for something. To be looking for brake pads in a grocery store is ridiculous. And yet... Since our first parents, Adam and Eve, burnt their garden paradise to the ground and were cast out into the ruins of Eden under the sun, we have been looking for brake pads in grocery stores. We've been looking for medicine in shoe stores. We've been looking for the wrong, we've been looking at the wrong place for what we need, what we want, what we desire. Imagine Adam and Eve coming out of the garden And looking around at creation and saying, where is this gain I had in the garden? Where can I get it now? Where can I get the peace and happiness and bliss that I had together when the Lord God walked with us in the cool of the day? It can't be found here. But that doesn't stop us from trying, right? Part of living wisely under the sun is knowing what can and cannot be found under the sun. When we search for gain, such as lasting meaning, or a benefit that endures, or pleasure that doesn't end, or security that is sure and steadfast, or a lasting influence that goes beyond us and our children and our children's children, when we look for those things under the sun, 
in this world, in the toil that we toil with, we don't find what we're looking for. That's what the preacher is arguing in this text, right? He picks up this question in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The preacher is not really asking the question because he doesn't know the answer. He's already said in verse 2, all is vanity, right? Vanity of vanities, verse 2, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity or all is hevel as we talked about last week. All under this sun is frustratingly mysterious, unfathomable. This is the preacher's argument. And so when he says, what gain then? In verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is the preacher throwing down the gauntlet at you. Because he knows that you are going to argue and say, well, wait a minute. There's still gain to be had. Not everything is hevel. Right? We continue to try to look for the wrong, in the wrong places we look for the right things. We look for brake pads in the grocery store and the preacher says, What gain is there? You can't find it where you think you can. Looking for gain in toil is ultimately going to lead to disappointment. And the preacher wants to prove it to us. He does that by arguing three things in this text. He argues that when we look out at creation, when we look out at the ruins of Eden, what we see is that nothing changes. Nothing is actually truly accomplished by toil. And then we also see that nothing that comes along is actually new, right? There's nothing new under the sun. If you know a verse from Ecclesiastes, you probably know Ecclesiastes 1.9. There's nothing new under the sun. And he argues, not only that, not only is there no change and nothing is new, but nothing that happens will be remembered. Everything will be forgotten. And so to try to find gain when those are the realities we face, is utterly heavy, frustratingly mysterious, unfathomable. So let's look at those one at a time and see what the preacher says. When he says, all is hevel, all is vanity under the sun, verse 2, we might be tempted to respond, well, surely if I work hard enough or work long enough, I'm going to produce some gain. And the preacher says, no. Look at creation. Verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. See, in the preacher's mind, the earth is like this stage where a generation goes and another generation comes over and over and over again. And on this stage, in the background, is this drama played out again and again and again. He says, look at the sun. We see it rise and we see it go back down. And then it comes and it rises again over and over and over Since Adam and Eve first looked at the giant flaming ball in the sky, it is risen and it is set. And it is returned to rise again and to set again. Not moving forward or backwards, 
just continuing on this treadmill of rising and setting, rising and setting, rising and setting. And it will do that long after our generation has already passed off the stage. And it will do that long after the generation after us has already passed off the stage. And nothing in all of this work of rising and setting and going back is accomplished. Not only that, verse 6, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. You might think, well, the sun seems like it's kind of trapped. From an ancient worldview, looking at the earth and the sun rising over the earth and taking its course in the sky, it seems like it's kind of trapped in that cycle. But what about the wind? It goes all over the place. But notice what the preacher says. The wind, though it goes around and around, on its circuits, the wind returns. It ultimately doesn't get anywhere. Right? We know that the wind goes, blows through here and goes somewhere else and circles the globe and comes right back. It doesn't accomplish anything lasting. It doesn't get to a destination. It just goes around and around and around. So goes the wind, so goes the sun, and so goes the streams. We're not far from the Mississippi The mighty Mississippi, which flows down towards the Gulf of Mexico. Over and over and over, it flows and flows and flows. And the current is strong. And the amount of water it moves is unfathomable. And yet, does the Gulf of Mexico fill up? Does it accomplish anything for all of its work, all of its toil? No. We know the water cycle, right? Water evaporates, goes back up into the clouds, comes down as rain, fills the river again, and it keeps going over and over and over. All of creation is on this treadmill. There is no gain for millennia of toil. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years have gone by, and there is no lasting gain. Now, you might be thinking, well, Surely there's something that happens because we know about erosion. We know that the landscape is changed by these forces of nature. The preacher's not making an argument like that. He's making an argument that says if we look at all of the work that creation puts in, the amount of gain that matters, that has significance, is so insignificant, there's no hope that anything is going to be accomplished by all of our toil. If creation cannot do it in thousands and thousands and thousands of years, how are you going to manage to do it in 80, maybe 90, maybe 100 if you live really long? How are you going to manage to find some lasting gain? If creation cannot create gain through all of its toil, then surely you cannot either. That's what the preacher is arguing. So looking to your work, looking to your toil to try to find the gain you're looking for, to try to find some kind of lasting meaning or significance or security or influence is going to be ultimately fruitless. Not only, though, is there no change when we look at creation, we also know from experience that nothing that comes our way is new. Because you might be tempted to think, well, if there's no hope in gain that I can create myself, maybe there's hope in looking to the future for some gain that's yet to be. 
Maybe something will come along that gives me what I want. Maybe gain is just around the bend. But the preacher says no. Look at verse 9. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. This is the preacher's observation in ancient days that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Everything we see and receive as new is actually a hand-me-down. And yet you might think, man, if the preacher could see us today, if he could see the technological advances that we have made, maybe he would change his tune. Maybe he would say, maybe there is something new. Maybe I will find the gain I'm looking for in next year's iPhone. But friends, technology is not actually new. We think of Zoom, which is so common these days in our use, right? We're getting used to video conferencing. Can you imagine what our ancestors would have thought of the ability to speak to someone via video, live, simultaneously? It's just unheard of. And yet, it's not actually new, right? Zoom enables us to connect with one another over vast distances and exchange ideas, build relationships, those kind of things. Before Zoom, before video conferencing, we did email, we did texting. Before that, we did phone calls. But even before that, we did telegrams, right? Still enabled people to connect with one another over distances, coordinate things, exchange ideas, etc. And before telegrams, we still had the ability to write letters, right? And even before that, there was the ability to carry messages by people going to someone and saying, hey, so-and-so told me to tell you this. We see that all over the New Testament, right? Paul is writing letters, sending messengers out to the church to encourage them in the faith, to coordinate ministry with them, and do things like that. It's not new. The means of doing these things have changed, but the core of what they are is not new. More has stayed the same than is new. The preacher's argument is our hope is not in new things because what has happened is what will happen and there's nothing new under the sun. You might object though that maybe we haven't made new things through technology but we've certainly made new things through progress. Our culture is addicted to the myth of progress. It's the idea that things will eventually and inevitably get better and that the way and the reason things get better is because we as human beings can shape and mold our society. This is the idea that we can make a better world together if we just work hard enough. And that might be true in some regards. If we work together, we can make things marginally better. But do those changes last? Did the glory of Roman society last or did it fall in the blink of an eye? Whatever changes we can make that we think are so positive and important and are going to bring us the gain we're looking for are minuscule when you compare them to world history. When you put them on the stage of creation, they do not stand up. 
Friends, even the most influential people and events in history eventually become footnotes in a history textbook that nobody reads. There's nothing new under the sun, the preacher says. The same frustrations that parents faced in ancient Israel, trying to get their kids to behave, are still with us today. The same frustrations that employees faced dealing with their bosses and dealing with the apparent futility of their work are the frustrations that we face today. They're not new. And so the hope that somehow something is going to change, that we will find the gain we are looking for, is a hopeless hope. If there's no gain to be had by our toil under the sun by now, there's not going to be gain that comes in the future because nothing is new under the sun. Not only is nothing new and not only does nothing change, but the preacher says nothing is remembered. This is part of why things sometimes feel new. It's not really because they are, it's because we've forgotten. Right? We might think, hmm, maybe I can find gain by leaving a mark for future generations, doing something memorable. Making my life count. The preacher says no. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things. Nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. John Lennon once quipped that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. But the fact that many of you young people probably couldn't even name all the Beatles shows the futility of thinking that we will be remembered the most popular, the most famous, the most memorable people and events that we encounter are ultimately going to be forgotten in a matter of 50, 60, 100 years. The fact is, friends, that we have never heard of almost everybody who has ever lived Just think about that for a minute. We've forgotten more people than we remember. We've forgotten more events than we remember. Events eventually fade into memory and story. And some stick around for a little while. But not in a substantive way. Right? Just think about September 11th. It was only 20 years ago. I remember where I was, and I remember watching on TV the towers fall. My kids only know about that from reading about it, from hearing others talk about it. Their kids will only know about that second, third hand, and so on. And eventually, it will be a footnote in history. It won't last. If there is no lasting memory then we are foolish to spend so much time and energy trying to craft our lives, who we are, what we stand for, what we do. Looking to those things for gain when we will eventually be forgotten is hopeless, the preacher says. Friends, these reasons amount to why There is no gain to be had by all the toil at which we toil under the sun. None of it will be remembered. None of it is new and produce something new. None of it changes anything. 
But you might wonder then, and you'd be right to wonder, how do we live if nothing changes? If nothing is new, if nothing will be remembered, doesn't this just amount to a meaningless life? And didn't we say that the preacher's argument is not that life is meaningless? What's the key to understanding how to live in light of nothing changing, nothing being new, and nothing being remembered? Friends, I think the key is in verse 8. Verse 8 says, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. See, we do actually gain something by all our toil under the sun. Toiling in the face of nothing changing and nothing being remembered and nothing being new produces in us a share in creation's weariness. Right? If you spend time thinking about how pointless, according to the preacher, your attempts to find gain in your job is, you'll grow weary of thinking that way. You will grow weary of trying to find gain through caring for your children, through focus on raising a family. It will eventually lead you down a path of weariness. All things are full of weariness, the preacher says. This weariness comes from searching for gain where there is no gain. Think about it this way. He says, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. I cannot tell you how excited I am for our camping trip to the southwest, where I'm going to be able to see the Grand Canyon. I am so pumped. I am so excited, and I am tempted to think, this will be gain. This will be what I'm looking for. But I know, and it already makes me sad and a little weary, that I will stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and look at its beauty and behold it, and then get back in the car and drive home. Eventually, our trip will be over. And it, I will not have been satisfied with seeing. Right? And that makes me a little bit sad, a little bit weary. If I try to find that gain that I want, in man, this thing is coming up, and this is going to make me happy. This is going to make me full. This is going to make me filled. It'll ultimately lead to disappointment. When we search for gain where gain is not found, we end up sharing in the weariness of creation. But this is not an accident. This is actually by God's good design. Look what the preacher says in verse 12 to 14. He ends his poem in verse 11 and he moves on. He says this, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. All of this toiling that we do, I applied my heart to seek and search out. And here's what I found. Verse 13, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. The preacher says this is an unhappy business, which we would agree with, yeah. Working with no gain? 
That's an unhappy business. But notice what he says in verse 13. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. In other words, this is by design. Something has happened that God has given us toil to be busy with that ultimately leads to weariness. A share in the creation's weariness. Why would God give us this unhappy business? Why would he create things this way? Why would he form things this way? Remember from chapter 12 from last week that the words of the wise are like goads. They're meant to push us towards some kind of conclusion. They're given by the one shepherd to help us come to some kind of conclusion about life under the sun. The conclusion that the words of the preacher are given to us here to conclude is that the problem is not our searching for gain, but the problem is our looking for gain in groaning things. Our looking for gain in things that are weary from all of their gainless toil. Are looking for gain in places that gain is not to be found. Are looking for gain in groaning things. I say groaning things because we're going to go to Romans 8 to help us understand what the preacher is saying here and how this works. Why would God give us unhappy business of wearisome toil? Romans 8, Paul writes this. Romans 8 verse 18 to 23. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says here the creation was subjected to futility. Verse 20, subjected to futility. This is the Greek version of Hevel, the Hebrew word in Ecclesiastes. Creation was subjected to futility or subjected to Hevel by God. Why? Remember what we saw last week. That in Genesis 3, we see our first parents burn down the garden and cast out of the garden and because of them the ground is cursed right genesis 3:17 to 19 the ground is cursed because of them subjected to futility but not futilely but in hope right paul says that in verse 20 it's subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope That the creation itself will be set free. There's a hope in the futility of creation, in the weariness of creation, that one day the weariness will end. Because 
The weariness is a result of the curse. And one day the curse will be overcome. Right? We see that promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15. That one day the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. There is nothing new under the sun because all of history is just an unfolding of this promise, this plan of redemption, this plan that God, before the foundations of the earth, put in place through his son Jesus to redeem all creation. And so creation waits with eager longing, Paul says. Creation waits with eager longing, and not only does creation wait, but we ourselves groan with creation, in verse 23 he says. And the gainless toil that God has given us to do under the sun in this created but cursed world, what it does in our hearts is it causes us to groan with creation. It causes us to long for toil that isn't gainless. It causes us to long for work that will be remembered. It causes us to long for work that matters. Just like creation does. To long for true gain. The gain that Paul says is our adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. There's many places we could go to see this work that endures, this work that lasts, this work that brings to an end, ultimately, the weariness of creation. To see it most clearly, I think we can go to Hebrews 9. Turn with me to Hebrews 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, the author of Hebrews is talking about the process of sacrifice in Israel. Since God's people first heard him speak to them and call them to be his people, he gave them laws, rules, particularly in books like Leviticus, of what they need to do day by day, week by week, year by year, to be able to dwell with God. And guess what? It was gainless toil. It was wearisome toil. It accomplished for a time what they needed, right? To be present with God. But it did not last. It was not remembered. It did not affect lasting change. The toil that Israel was given in the priestly sacrifices was toil without lasting gain. Listen to Hebrews 9, 6 to 10. The author describes it this way. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section of the tabernacle, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for this present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. In other words, all of these things just amount to weariness. But listen to what Christ did. 
Hebrews 15, or excuse me, Hebrews 9, 11 to 15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls, goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Praise the Lord. Hebrews is sometimes just as hard to understand as Ecclesiastes. That's okay. Let me break it down for you. What he's saying is that Jesus, by his own blood, rather than the blood of bulls and goats and all the sacrificial offerings, Jesus, by his own blood, offered once and for all, The sacrifice that was needed to make us right for God. In other words, he worked and his work did not need to be repeated over and over and over and over. He worked and it was done. He toiled and had real and lasting gain as a result of his toil. He overcame the curse. He accomplished through his blood what we could not through all of our wearisome toil. He accomplished through his blood something new, a new covenant, a new and lasting covenant, something that will be remembered. It is an eternal inheritance. Friends, this is what Christ did, and this is what we need. Our souls are going to be constantly restless, as Augustine says, until we find our rest in him. Our souls are going to be constantly weary Until we come to the one who truly accomplishes lasting gain. The one who actually has the gain we're looking for. When we come to him, when we are in him, not only do we receive the true gain that we're looking for, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, when we are in Christ, our labor is not in vain. Our toil no longer becomes merely wearisome, merely meaningless. But our toil in Christ becomes deeply, deeply meaningful and deeply, deeply lasting. When we are in Christ, we don't have to hope that there is nothing new that will ever come. We are on a trajectory towards a new creation promised to us in Revelation that the God will come and dwell with his people and wipe away every tear from every eye and death and dying will be abolished. And he says, behold, I am making all things new. This is the promise that we have in Christ. And the call of the preacher in Ecclesiastes is to stop looking for gain in these groaning things. You will not find it. But instead, look for gain in the one who accomplished true and lasting gain. Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the work that you do being obedient to your Father. 
to accomplish true and lasting gain for your people. Our hearts continue to be restless while we look at this world and hope for the gain that won't come. Would you help us look to you and find rest in you and find relief from our weariness even as we continue to long for more? Lord Jesus, we look forward to the day when you come and all things are made new and lasting peace And satisfaction is given to us. Help us to long for that day. And to groan with creation for that day we pray. Amen.